Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. I'm your host, Mark Hamilton, joined by my co-host, my co-host, my colleague. (laughs) Wow, what a great way to start the podcast. My good friend, Mr. Mark Daly. You know, we've got tons of stuff to get to, but my friend, how the heck are you doing? I know you've had a busy week. So have I. How's it been going? Oh, man, it's been an insane week, and I just can't wait to put it behind me and get into the weekend. I mean, it is Friday, technically, here. I mean, it's just the dying hours of Thursday night. So the, the weekend is now, it's it's large. It's right in the in the headlights. We can see it in front of us. I just can't wait to, to, to get onto it. I mean, it's been a crazy week for both of us. Uh, I, I, you know, there, there hasn't been a lot of communication back and forth. I mean, we're usually messaging each other like all the time, and this week has been like radio silence. So it's nice to get back and sit down uh, with you tonight and talk about some Formula One and share some laughs and probably some frustrations and you know just typical Formula One stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. It's been it's been one of those weeks, and I I think like uh, I think like the world of Formula One, January February represents something of a tide change in the sport. You see a lot of driver changes, you see executive changes, you see leadership changes, you see sponsor changes. It's a busy time, and it's been a busy time at. At my uh, place of employment, and I was hoping really to get the agenda out to you a couple of days ago. We usually try to get the agenda ready to go by Tuesday, Wednesday. We start massaging it, sharing yep. feedback back and forth. Today, it was thrown together about an hour <laughs> ago to, to pull back the curtain on the sausage factory that uh, is this podcast. But it is an exciting time, right? Like It might feel like we're in the dead of winter. It's January 21st. It is a Friday. Thank goodness I need the weekend as badly as you do. No, tell me about but it. Really, when when you look at the calendar right now, we're 60 days away from the first Grand Prix in Bahrain. We are just now 20 days away from the first car unveil. So I think since the last time you and I talked, we've had a couple of announcements. Aston Martin is going to drop the AMR 22 on February 10th. That's going to be followed quickly by the McLaren MCL 36 on the 11th. Ferrari, they haven't decided what they're going to call the car yet, but it's going to drop on the 17th. And then on February 18th, Mercedes is going to reveal the AMG F1W. 13. So cool. updates are going to come fast and furious. And you know, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, we are going to be digesting and processing and talking about seeing some of these 2022 cars for the first time. Isn't that incredible? I mean, it, it's funny. I mean, it, it doesn't really seem like that last race of the season was all that long ago. But then I look, I'm like, oh my God, Christmas was already a month ago. <laughs> it's just like, where, where did uh, where did the first, yeah, where did the last uh, couple of weeks and where did the almost the first month of 2022 go? I've, I've actually gotten into the habit of writing 2022 on all my official correspondences and things like that at work. And that's a, that's a win because usually it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't kick in until about March. But yeah, it, it's it, the, the off season is really going quick. So, 
you know, it's it's going to be fun. It's going to be great to see all these new cars. And it gets a bit real when you see those dates because, you know, once they, they go out there and they commit to them, then you know that's something that you just uh, can count on. So, I mean, just days away now, literally, it's, it's I, I can't wait. We've been, li- we've been waiting for these reveals for, what, three years, four years now? <laughs> it's been a really, really long time. You nailed it. And to recap, and if you weren't on the Spaces chat tonight, we talked about this a little bit. Last year's car reveals were a little bit anticlimactic because most teams effectively physically just carried over their 2020 cars because, of course, the cars that we're going to see in a couple of weeks were the cars that were supposed to be put under the track for 2021. That was delayed by COVID. So when you talk about we've been waiting years, we have been waiting years. And we got a bit of a teaser from Formula One last year. They were taking around that show car to all of the events. It had that bizarre, crazy, controversial controversial holographic livery, but we're going to see the cars for the first time. And I think what's going to be most exciting about this is looking at the different conclusions, the engineers from each of the individual teams drew, Mm -hmm. how do they devise that front wing? How, how vastly different do the rear wings look? What do the, what do the winglets look like? What is the position of the side pods? Like that's what I'm excited to see. One, the liveries are always cool, but I think it's going to be this time. What kind of conclusions did the individual teams come to when it came to putting together the 2022 cars and did any of the teams a la braun in 2009 come up with something really really innovative you know a couple of uh well i guess it's probably back at the beginning of last summer i went back and started watching some of the historic races from 2009 in the f1 tv um archive i guess is the proper word for it and it was really cool i went and watched i think it was the first two three races of uh, 2009 and because that's one of the full complete seasons that they they actually have in the historical record there and it really was astonishing how they literally came out of nowhere because I mean prior to that being Braun GP that team was Honda and that team was literally going nowhere fast and they they weren't getting it right they they weren't a, a super competitive team at all and honestly when Braun took over the team and then named it after himself and they they came literally out of nowhere with this this world beater. I mean, everybody just sort of sat up and and, and took notice. And then, of course, you know the the story goes that uh, they were taken over and rebranded in Mercedes, and the rest is um, as they say uh, history. But exciting times! I, I really can't wait to see. So you said Aston Martin's the top of that list currently, right? Currently, you're absolutely right. So they will drop on February 10th. That doesn't mean that somebody won't precede them, but we just don't know yet. I think by the time we get to recording next week's podcast, we should have a pretty good idea of when all uh, 10 of the individual teams will be dropping their reveal dates. But yeah, right now we've got four and Aston Martin is currently heading the pack. And that's what I'm excited to see because obviously 2021, as you and I have discussed so much, was such a bitter disappointment. And I think the other thing that's going to be interesting is they were very excited to bring their green livery to the track last year. Mm -hmm. I think as the team indicated multiple times throughout the campaign, it didn't show up on TV the way they expected. And the other thing that we've discussed or discovered, which we'll talk about a little later in this podcast is BWT and Aston Martin have gone separate ways. So there won't be any pink on this year's Aston Martin slash racing point slash force India contender. Yeah. Which is kind of too bad, too bad in a way, because, you know, I mean, I don't really have any affinity and we're not being sponsored by BWT, but those pink highlights actually did lend something uh, to the car. So I hope they've uh, picked it out. You know, I, 
I hope that they've improved on that color of racing green because I mean that is just uh, it's a great color. I mean uh, when when you get it right, and that's the thing though. I remember as a kid uh, growing up, I never really appreciated on the McLarens back in the the the, the day. They had the white and like that day glow orange for the um, well, which is obviously the the, the Marlboro uh, Marlboro branding back in the day when everything was sponsored by tobacco companies, of course. But I never realized for years afterwards, and even in the magazines, it never really translated that, how bright that color actually was. And it wasn't until we were visiting in the UK that we were at a museum or something somewhere where they had one of the recent McLaren cars there. And I was like, oh my God, it's like this this day glow orange. And it just like, I, I never looked at those cars the same ever since. And I mean, it just... Uh, it was a pretty spectacular, although it's a little bit to pick up Daglo Orange on TV even way back in the yeah. day on <laughs> yes, <laughs> before like definition. prior to like 4K and, you know, HD yeah. and all these things. But uh, yeah, the, you know, the darker shades definitely a little bit more difficult to pick up on uh, e- even modern TV. I feel like that museum, by the way, was Bewley in New Forest because I think I know the exact same car that you're talking about, and I'm pretty sure you know I what? saw it there and, back in. And shame on me! Everybody in my family has been to Bewley, and I've been to basically every other museum in the UK, but I've never been to Bewley. I mean, it's top oh. of my list. You know where I think it was was at uh, at Brooklands, and that's where they oh, still have they they have part of the track there. They got a wonderful museum there, and uh, it, there was a McLaren there, but that might have been. Yeah, I can't remember what year that was. I mean, I was still probably in my teens when I saw it, but uh, yeah, I know, shame on me. So anybody listening, take Mark's advice. If you're in the UK and you want to go to an amazing museum, make sure that you look up uh, Bewley because that is, uh, I, I've heard the stories, I've seen the pictures, and I just got to get my button gear and actually get there. So, <laughs> hey, before we get into the show itself, we wanted to do some mailbag stuff. You want to do tweets? Or I got one email here that uh, that, that came in uh, over the last couple of days. Where, where do you want to start? Twitter, email, you choose. Let, I think you, uh, you'd you mentioned before the show that you were excited about the questions. So why don't oh, okay. we go to the email mailbox and okay. uh, start there? Okay. Well, okay. This uh, I'll, I'll read this one in its entirety. Hi, Mark and Mark. I'm listening to your podcast since last year when I found out about you guys, and I immediately binged all episodes available on Spotify. Huge fan. I had an interesting thought about the 2022 Carson. Oh, man. I just got to back up for a second. You binged the entire episodes on Spotify. He's obviously wow, a huge fan. Thank That's you. A, thank you so much. That's awesome. <laughs> That's some serious commitment. <laughs> that is a huge commitment. Anyways, uh, emailer goes on to say, I had an interesting thought about the 2022 cars. So we have this concept of daughter and mother team where the daughter teams are Alpha Tauri and Alpha Romeo, for instance, and the mother teams are Red Bull and Ferrari. Also, the 2022 cars are new and the teams do not have experience with it. This leaves aero philosophy more up to chance. Since the engine is frozen this year, many teams are trying to adapt as best possible to the new aero regulations. There is a chance that these previously slower sister teams are going to come out faster than their mother team just because they get the aero philosophy right. This will lead to interesting conversations on the track, especially, for instance, uh, Red Bull and AlphaTauri. I know that the bigger teams have much higher budgets, etc. However, I still think it is an interesting thought. What do you think about this? Much love from Holland. Timo van Frankenhausen. P.S. Daily, do you think you can try to pronounce my name right? I've done my very best. You know, I'm English is my first awesome. language. Grew up in a Dutch family here, kind of learned it on the side. So, you know, also, I have it in the Goed gezegd, then kreeg je een pilsje van mij. 
So there's that. Anyways, do you want to dive into that? And Timo, thank you for the the awesome email. Love it. And uh, where do you want to break this one down? Because I think he brings up some very, very interesting points. You know, what with the the, the arrow regs being completely new and uh, completely unmatched, I guess, uh, in terms of the, the, the teams knowing how the other ones are uh, performing. That uh, and and let, let's be fair, we don't know how much you know communication back and forth there is between, say, Red Bull and Alpha Tauri. I mean, the thing is, each team is supposed to build their own unique uh, contender for the championship. But having said that, you know, who who knows? I mean, we know that back in the day, a couple of years ago, when they were kind of like shopping around for engines, they had the Honda in the back of the uh, the Alpha Tauri or the the Toro Rosso at the time. They had the, uh, the 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 Renault and the Red Bull, so they're able to compare data basically one up against another. But I mean, in theory. We really don't know how these cars are going to stack up against each other. There's obviously going to be more distance between an Alfa Romeo and a Ferrari. But still, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to what you were saying in the intro there when we were just kind of talking about things that the, the way that um, the, the season is shaping up is that there is every chance that uh, one team could completely come out of nowhere and turn some heads. I totally agree. And I think that's what you and I are probably most excited about is seeing a couple of surprises yep. on the grid to start the season. And I think the consideration, and I should back this up, one, Timo, thank you so much for all the support in the fantastic email. We don't take anybody's support for granted, and kudos to you for going and working through the back catalog. I would like to think that our wives have a certain affinity or a love for us, but I don't think either of them could work through the back catalog of podcasts (laughs) unless they were being forced to, so thank you so much for that. I, I just I think the consideration is, is an important one here when it comes mm-hmm. to the 2022 regs. So we're basically setting pressing reset on everything except the power unit. But the creative license that teams have to develop certain components is tighter than it would have been before. So we won't see the same kind of wild swings and variation that we have before because the the regulations are tighter. They're not going to say something like, hey, you know what? This part can be between one millimeter and a hundred millimeters wide. It's going to be, this part has to be between eight and 10 millimeters wide. So the formula is just tighter. The other consideration too is there are four far more standardized parts, meaning that teams either have to build a part to an exact specification, meaning that all the teams should build the exact same part or the teams have to buy the same parts from a standard supplier, as we're going to see with BBS wheels. So (laughs) as much as I would like to think that we would see an underdog come forward as a surprise contender, not super confident that that's going to happen. It may, and I think it would be super fun. Like I would love nothing more to see Valtteri Bottas score a podium or score a win in the early part of the season. That would be amazing, right? or something along those lines, but I'm not necessarily super confident we're going to see it because I just don't think the Formula One regulations as they're now constructed will allow a team to be so far off the mark or so far ahead of the pack. I just, I think the formula is very, very tight and Mm -hmm. it was designed that way to avoid this vast spectrum of competitiveness on the, on the, uh, the calendar. Yeah, it's that's going to be one of the fun things to look forward to in uh, 22 is all all these, uh, you know, all the unknowns, like I said, and just the fact that, uh, you know, (laughs) it's going to be fun. Anyways, Timo, bedankt for the email, Johan. Okay, let's go to uh, Twitter. What do we have in the the, the Twitter inbox? Because I guess it's not really a mailbag, is it, when it comes to Twitters? This this question's pretty 
a clear reflection that we probably spend too much time talking about the weather here in Vancouver. <laughs> but this comes from Zach, and not the Zach that traditionally reaches out and yep. shows us lots of support, although yep. suspiciously, my, our good friend Zach hasn't reached out in a while, so we would love to hear from you, Zach. Hopefully, you're listening to this podcast at work, and it's helping you pass the time. But from this, Zach, you guys live in Canada, and I assume you're buried in snow for four months each winter. How do you pass the off-season without Formula One? Well, I mean, uh, well, let, let's just clear up uh, something here. We live in Vancouver, which is like the one part of Canada that literally gets like zero snow. I mean, if you think, you know, if you're familiar with the Pacific Northwest and say Seattle, Portland, and that part of the, the, the United States, especially Seattle being a little bit further north than, than Portland, the one thing that, uh, that people talk about there all the time is rain during the winter. So we get just about as much rain. And then you can go 100 miles east of here and then, you know, it turns into a, a winter wonderland. But having said that we're usually good for one or two big dumps of snow every winter and uh, this past uh, well just this past month I mean we, we basically kicked off uh, the, the winter to uh, you know with some fanfare I mean it got very cold over the Christmas holiday break there, we had a lot of snow, and especially where I live, uh, that's, uh, you know, just a little bit higher up on the mountain. I mean, we had uh, probably a couple of feet of snow by the time it was all done. And I mean, in the past uh, two weeks, we've kind of reverted back to our mild, wet, and soggy West Coast <laughs> winter. So everything's all rapidly melted. But I mean, honestly, the way that that, that I try and survive the, uh, the, the off season is, you know, I, you know, as much as I love Formula One, I've got a lot of different interests uh, going on. I've got, uh, you know, work keeps me busy. Family keeps me busy. I've got a part-time uh, career in the military that keeps me busy. Um, I love sports. NFL wildcard weekend uh, just uh, was going on uh, last week. So that was uh, good fun. And uh, I ski, I bike. There's, uh, you know, I'm one of these people that uh, that work actually gets in the way of my <laughs> my interests. And I know you're the same way, Mark. I think if we were independently wealthy, then, uh, you know, neither you or I would be pressed to find ways to spend our time. Yeah, no way at all. I always forget about your involvement in the military, and now I feel bad for constantly joking about being a, <laughs> a high-flying drug dealer in our neighborhood. <laughs> I, it's super inappropriate now that I think about it. Um, I, I think. Don't worry, I'm not. I'm not ATF that, man. <laughs> <laughs> one thing to consider that is that while it's not super cold where we are, yeah. the winters are very similar to Portland and Seattle. Our winters are incredibly dark. It's dark yeah. until 9 a.m. It's dark at 4 p.m. And the days are typically overcast and gray. So mm -hmm. I think the struggle for us is finding things to do indoors in the winter to help pass the time and yep. to, to not get too, to suffer from too much seasonal depression because of the darkness. So I think very similar to you, tons of activities. I've got my son. I, I've become... I've always been a big runner. I love to run. Yep. I love to consume podcasts. It's where I get all my sports news. The podcast takes up a good chunk of time, not as much as I would love to commit to it. Oh, same. So it's really just about finding hobbies and things like that. I, I struggle with TV shows. Like I love TV and I love movies. I just, I struggle to be able to commit to a TV show or a movie, but there's probably a hundred TV shows that I would love to go back and binge and enjoy. And ever since I've had, we've had our son, we haven't been able to watch a ton of really great movies because mm -hmm. he's typically just around like he's more of a roommate to us than he is a son <laughs> so uh if we're up at 10 p.m watching a movie he's sitting there beside us doing something so it's difficult that's to hilarious. watch any adult films but but other than that that's a that's a good question thanks for asking i, I, I got a question for you then uh, what is the last series that you watched like either streamed or watched on tv wh whatever it was well you don't have cable do you 
So no, we cut the cord long ago, but we certainly subscribe to a lot of streaming platforms. So we have Disney Plus, which I love. We have Netflix, which is really good. We have Amazon Prime. I want desperately to subscribe to Crave. A couple of the Mm. shows that I do need to finish, I loved Power. I haven't finished the last season. I haven't finished, I haven't started the spinoff, but I absolutely adored Power. Um, Billions, I loved. We're a couple seasons behind on that. In terms of shows I did finish, like last summer, I actually got a, a running injury. So I had to switch to a stationary bike. So in the fall, I binged over the course of a couple of months every episode of the Trailer Park Boys, and <laughs> and uh, now I'm watching uh, Grownish um, on Disney Plus. But but yeah, that's kind of what I've been going through lately. Cool, cool. Yeah, you know, I'm also uh, you know I, I love to read. I've got an e-reader which goes with me everywhere. And uh, the the one series I just finished binging was uh, The Wheel of Time on uh, Amazon Prime because I've read all the books and now I'm watching the the series and I'm done series season one. And, you know, there's like 11 more seasons to come if they they pull it together. Anyways. So I, ha- I yeah. have to ask you. So I was sure. talking to friend of the show, Josh Cooper, before we kicked off. And he was talking about some of the really great books he's been reading. I was like, yeah. dude, how do you, how, you're, you're super busy. You've got a family. How do you find time to read? And I think for me, I probably do have time, but I end up just scrolling through in social media on yeah. my phone instead of being something productive. How do you find time to read? You, you've got a big family. You've got multiple jobs. You've got multiple hobbies. Yeah, it's just basically, I mean, that's why the e-reader is great because, you know, I can, you know, and the, uh, that that's the thing is because, you know, you know, being somebody that has trouble focusing on things, you know, I can't read one book at a time. So I just, uh, that's why I love the e-reader because I can have all the books I'm reading. And I just pick it up and literally 15 minutes coffee break at work, boom, out comes the e-reader. You know, I'm just uh, sitting down and got 15, 20 minutes after dinner, boom, out comes the e-reader. Just uh, break off a couple of chapters and then, uh, or whatever time allows, and go on to to the next one, because we all know that uh, you know this this is the anchor around our neck that uh, de- de- you know demands all the attention. But you know we enjoy it, so it's all good. <laughs> all right. So what's the next question in the mail? Oh, actually, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll do some more tweets. So don't go away, and we'll be back in just a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. And it's Mark and Mark here, and we're reading tweets and emails. So we got a couple of those under our belt. What's up next then? I think the next one, and this one's targeted a little bit towards me, I guess, because I'm assuming this individual probably knows where I work and what I do. But (laughs) Hamilton, I know you're big into technology and work at blank blank. Can you recommend a big screen TV to optimize my F1 viewing this year? 
Oh boy, can I? So <laughs> I think it really depends on, on your budget. But obviously, if you want to get really immersed in F1, it's not enough just to have a big screen TV. You want to have a really great soundbar, some surround speakers, and a subwoofer. If you can, if you can pull that off, and your partner, your significant other is okay with it. But my recommendation is that if you can pull it, if you can make it work, uh, both both LG and San- and Sony offer some really really great OLED televisions. Mm. OLED provides tremendous contrast and true inky blacks. Um, They effectively have the ability to turn off pixels when they're not being used. So if there's a black scene, they just turn off the pixel so you don't get a lot of grayish, bluish kind of schmarminess on the screen. So I would recommend if you're looking to buy a TV, look at LG, look at Sony. I would highly recommend Sony over OLED. I've had a Sony OLED now for almost five years and we absolutely love it. Samsung at CES a couple weeks ago announced that they will be releasing their own line of OLED TVs later this year. And I believe Sony's actually going to incorporate the Samsung OLED panels into their TVs or at least part of their lineup. So that should be exciting to look for. But if money's not necessarily an object and you can spare a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars US or say fourteen to two thousand dollars Canadian, I, I would say OLED's the way to go. And I think a lot of the image retention or burn-in issues of the early units from say 2015, 2016, those have largely been addressed. So probably no major issues there. Nice. So, so what do you think uh, for like a complete setup then? Um, you know, let's go the Gucci routes where, you know, we're kind of top of the line, everything. What, what do you what, what do you expect that would set somebody back? Yeah, so I think that's an awesome question. And I have to be cautious because I love our system a lot, but we also got really great staff purchases on all of the equipment that we have. So sure. I have to appreciate that for for somebody walking in off the street, it might not be quite so easy. But I think an OLED panel, my recommendation would be would be a Sony TV. Pair that with the 4K Apple TV. The absolutely amazing mm-hmm. F1 TV Pro app is now native to that device. Yep. You don't have to air play. You don't have to stream it. You don't have to mirror your phone or your tablet. You can play it natively. Mm-hmm. They don't have 4K streaming content yet, but the 1080p 50s, pretty darn good it's it's pretty solid yeah yeah it's pretty good uh it's getting better and i I look forward to the day they they finally reveal 4k streaming but in terms of an audio setup if you can pull it my recommendation is to keep it clean do not go with wires do not go with a stereo receiver go with a sono soundbar the play bar or the newer atmos play bar um, and just pair that with a couple of sonos ones which are the small ones that can act as your surround speakers and then mm-hmm. eventually if you can pull it the sono sub so for me it's a sony tv paired with a sonos 5.1 system you've got no wires it's super clean nice. and the benefit of the sono speakers too is is you can airplay directly to them from your phone or your tablet. So if you're not using it for a home theater setup or to watch Formula One, you can just airplay directly from your device to the speakers for for audio immersion or whatever the case might be, or even for a party. Dude, you know, I I just feel like uh, we should just break the show off right here. I feel like I got to do some browsing now online. So let's go to the next uh, the next tweet because uh, this could get very expensive <laughs> all so of a here, sudden. Here's a tweet. I'm going to kick this one over to you. Okay. Um, and it's one that I didn't get on the agenda, but it came in right before we started the podcast. Oh, and I get nervous it, about this these one is ones. From Jake. That's off. No, this script. is a good one. I okay, think you'll be good. The question's from Jake, and Jake's question is, hey guys, uh, I started a podcast recently, Mm -hmm. in brackets, not Formula One, and I spend hours and hours preparing for the podcast and many hours editing the podcast after we've recorded. How do you guys do it every single week? How much time do you spend prepping, and how much time do you spend in post, so (laughs) post-production, getting the recording ready, after the podcast is done? You guys do a great job. I tune in every single week. Thank you so much, um, Jake. 
Oh, man. So basically, I don't let my kids sleep. I make them come down here and do all the post, all the prep. <laughs> and, you know, Mark and I are upstairs just chilling and just, uh, you, know, you know, laughing evilly. But, you know, uh, seriously, you know, Jake, you know, it, it's 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 what you put into it. Uh, and there, there's just, you know, what, what you see and what you hear. I mean, the, for the people watching the live stream, for those of you listening to the podcast right now, this is the end result. I mean, there's probably three times the amount of work goes into prepping into post at least uh so i would say that that that's probably the the the, the ratio is about three to one of uh work compared to so for wh- every one hour that you, you hear or watch that there there's you know two to three hours minimum of uh, work in the background. And, you know, the thing is that you'll find that the more you do it, you'll kind of get your own system, you'll get your own kind of workflow, and you'll get efficient with that. But the thing is, it's, you know, what, what you put into it is what you you get out of it. And, um, you know, Mark and I were very much on the same page when it comes to things like production quality, and just the the overall script and the flow of the show. And and, and Jorge and I were like that when we started the other podcast that, uh, that we ran for a number of years, it covered uh, Major League Soccer and the Vancouver Whitecaps, we thought we could have the best content ever but if the show sounds like garbage the audio quality is terrible then nobody's going to listen to it because they they won't be able to stand the show and listen to it for more than a couple of uh, minutes so i mean we spent a lot of time learning audio production and learning about microphones and all these different things to to basically build it up from the from, from the ground up you know, I've gotten to a point now where I'm comfortable with doing it. And, you know, Mark is too from, you know, his parallel experience before we partnered up uh, you know, over, what was it, a year and a half ago now, whatever it is. I mean, time flies. But uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I wish there was uh, some easy way, some, you know, you know, magic app or some way you could snap, uh, snap the fingers. But, uh, you know, my advice and my suggestion, and I'm sure Mark will, uh, you know, echo this is just, uh, you know, focus on it, you know, just, just do what you do, do what, uh, you know, makes you Awesome. Focus on that. Focus on the production, and uh, just make sure that uh, that you keep the comment or the the content coming. Because don't hit your audience with like two episodes a week, and then don't drop anything for three months, or you know, do it every week, whatever it is. Just you know, once once you get your community built, make sure you uh, you know, keep it coming because uh, you know th- th- those are the people that you're doing it for, and that's what makes it fun. The only thing I would add, and I think all of that is perfect, is. The post-production is infinitely easier if you prep well and the recording goes smoothly. True. You will spend an infinite and endless amount of time in production if you have a really choppy, if you have a really choppy recording. Mm -hmm. One thing that we do that actually surprises a lot of people, although probably not the people that join us on YouTube to watch the stream every week is, as you would say, this is live to tape. Yeah. Is that the expression? Yeah. In radio, this is what's- yeah, this is what's known as live to tape. I mean, if we were doing this, um, you know, on the radio, it basically the mics would go hot, you know, all the lights would go red in the studio, and all the on-air signs would go on, and that's basically how we do. It. We don't edit out very, we don't edit out anything. So, I mean, basically, what you hear is what you get. I mean, the only difference uh, between the podcast and the live stream is that uh, when we say we break for these uh, commercials, which you know we have to do with the uh, with our provider, is we basically leave about four or five seconds of dead air, and if they have uh, you know an advert to fill then those ad markers go later on so sometimes you hear that in the podcast or sometimes you just hear a bit of dead air but that's that's about the the only thing so what we do at the end is we we edit it in its entirety we run it through our own secret recipe of uh, post-production and uh, to tidy up the, the the audio and then we fire it together and that that that's what you get but I mean 
YouTube gets everything in its entirety and all its, uh, you know, but I mean, <laughs> there, there honestly isn't really a big difference between them, but, uh, yeah, that, th- that, that's a thing. Yeah. Cool. cool. Great question. Yeah, that was a great I question. Think, should we? Should we get into the news, given that we market ourselves as an F1 news podcast and here we are an hour later? That's right. Okay. Well, actually, why, why don't we just, uh, why don't we break early here? And then now yeah, we can go good. for a nice long section and uh, segment and talk about Formula One. So guys, uh, don't go away. We got a short break uh, for a message from our sponsor. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, well, welcome back, and here we go. Finally, 30 minutes into this thing, we're actually going to talk about some Formula One. Although <laughs> we, we did a little bit here and there in the in the first couple of segments, but hey, it's off-season. You know, we're, we're kind of talking about a lot of the things that we don't some we don't get to sometimes during the the, the rest of the year, but that's uh, it's all fun. So big news this week, uh, of course, is, well, I mean, last week there was big news because Aston Martin and Otmar Safnauer, former team principal, parted ways. This week, uh, they make the announcements that... Uh, in very short order. I was very surprised that this was uh, announced so fast. But uh, Aston Martin has uh, announced Safnauer's replacement, and that's former BMW Motorsports heads Mike Krak. And he takes over at the big job there. And um, I was a bit surprised. I must be honest with you. I'm not very familiar with Krak. I know that he had up the BMW's uh, global motorsport operations since about 2014, 2015. So that meant uh, he was in charge of the Formula E, GT, and IMSA programs, and then uh, oversaw the expansion of their their new LMDH category. Prior to that, uh, he spent uh, a couple of years with Porsche as head of track and engineering for their LMP1 project. And, uh, well, I mean, there is one uh, Formula One tie-in because when he was uh, at Porsche, he was actually working alongside McLaren's team principal, Andreas Seidel. So anyways, he does have some Formula One uh, experience. He worked at Sauber and then BM Sauber, Sauber pardon me, way back in the day. And uh, he was actually worked as an engineer with uh, Sebastian Vettel when uh, he was uh, with Sauber way back in the day. So anyways, uh, Krak had to say, quote, it is a thrill and an honor to have been appointed to the position of team principal of Aston Martin. I'm very grateful to Lauren Stroll and Martin Whitmarsh for giving me such a fantastic opportunity. Aston Martin is one of the greatest automotive brands in the world and to have uh, been asked to play a leading role in delivering the on-track Formula One success that such an illustrious name so richly deserves is a challenge that I plan to embrace with energy and enthusiasm, end quote. So there you go. What do you make of this signing, Mark? It's an interesting one, is it not? It happened. Yeah, it feels like this was all orchestrated months totally, ago. Totally, totally. We, we talked about back in the fall that there was a there was a leak, there was a story, there were reports that Otmar was going to be leaving Aston Martin to join Alpine. Everyone quickly dismissed that. It's not true, it's not true, it's not true. Yeah. The season ends and almost unceremoniously, Otmar is out the door despite the fact that he'd been with that organization since 2009, had seen it through administration, had seen it through Rocky ownership, had done a great job of building relationships with sponsors, including BW2 or BWT, but 
to me, this just goes back to last fall when Whitmarsh was signed by Lawrence Stroll to head up the Aston Martin division. And I think questions started being asked immediately about what the relationship was going to be between Otmar and Whitmarsh. And I think people close to the organization as well had sensed or believed that maybe Otmar was in a position for a promotion, not in a position in his career at this stage where he was suddenly going to be taking marching orders from Whitmarsh. And I think it became pretty untenable within that organization. And Clearly, Lawrence had some degree of trust in in Whitmarsh to make this happen. Now, in this case, I think the hiring is, like you said, that this individual has no experience as a team principal, has no experience running a Formula One team. I think that this is part of Whitmarsh's master plan, that he wants somebody that's going to be willing to take marching orders from him and isn't going to demand a great deal of autonomy in terms of operating the Formula One team. And I think Whitmarsh knows what he's signing up for. And says Lawrence Stroll, and I'll quote here, we are about to embark on year two of our five-year plan, the objective of which is to win Formula One World Championships. Mm -hmm. All the ingredients we require are coming together. Mike will play a central and leading role, reporting to Martin Whitmarsh, Aston Martin Group Chief Executive Officer in brackets, and leading our technical and operational functions. Our collective aim being to fulfill those lofty ambitions. We are on our way. I think in the paddock and I think in the fan community, there's a lot of love for Otmar. So I'm a little mixed on this move because I feel like Otmar yeah. had extracted everything that would have was possible from this organization for many years. Well, I, I think that he did a great job in the time that he was there and the various iterations of Aston Martin slash Racing Point slash Force India. I mean, there, there, there's no doubt about it. But I mean, this whole appointment of Crack really feels to me like it was uh, he was headhunted. He was the guy that they wanted. And it was just yeah, uh, finding a way to, you know, finagle him and work him into the organization. So it was um, I, as, as surprised as I was that they parted with uh, with Otmar, I was equally as surprised that they that they announced a replacement uh, so quickly. But, you know, the equally, though, what uh, what was uh, surprising to me as well this week is that uh, they uh, have snatched away uh, Red Bull's former head of uh, aerodynamics, a fellow by the name of Dan Fallows. Uh, <laughs> that was a bit of an odd transition there. Anyways, uh, Dan will uh, become their new technical director at Aston Martin in April after uh, Aston Martin Red Bull actually reached an agreement uh, about his uh, notice period and the fact that Mr. Fallows will not have to spend an extended period of uh, gardening leave at his uh, at home so he'll be able to um, get going uh, pretty quick and Aston Martin Group Chief Executive Martin Whitmarsh wow that is a mouthful for a job title is it not wow <laughs> Mr. Whitmarsh wow he must have like the big uh, extra large uh, size business card for that anyways Whitmarsh had to say quote we are pleased to have reached an agreement with Red Bull which releases Dan early from his contract and are looking forward to him joining the team end quote uh, on the other side on the flip side uh, Christian Horner team principal at Red Bull said, quote, we would like to thank Dan for his many years of excellent service and wish him well for the future, end quote. So, you know, kind of a generic thing. And, and Dan Fallows himself um, said, quote, I've enjoyed many happy years at Red Bull Racing and proud of what we achieved. I'm looking forward to next season and a new challenge, end quote. You know, I, I'd be interested to, to find out. I'm, I'm not immediately familiar with, the, with him and his career and how much time he spent at Red Bull, but and get the uh, you know the impression that he has been there for for quite some time. I wonder if he goes back to the championship years, you know, a decade ago with the Sebastian Vettel and the four world titles that they uh, they pulled off then, and then Max's world title. Yes, I know that that's still a debate for a lot of people, but <laughs> moving on from that. 
um, that uh, maybe he just felt that was the, the, the perfect time to walk away from the organization and move over to a, you know, a, a team that obviously has some very big ambitions. Obviously, Aston Martin, one of the most well-known marks of uh, automobile in the entire world. I, I could see the attraction of trying to go there. And obviously, Lawrence Stroll makes, uh, I think, one heck of a good sales pitch, not in just uh, what they want to do, but to the, the, the fact that he's invested so much of his own money into this project, into this company you know, obviously shows people who are serious about uh, motorsport, who are pros, are obviously uh, going for that pitch because, you know, they're they're the real deal. So when, when you see some big names and, or, you know, maybe not necessarily big names, but uh, very qualified people going to a team like Aston Martin, it uh, kind of gets me excited again that they're going to they're gonna get it right at some point and design a winning car, or at least a very, you know, a, a good challenger. Let's put it that way. I have I have a bit of a sense that there's a lot of excitement in the world of Formula One about having the opportunity to work for Aston Martin. I think people look at that team and they see the money that that Stroll is investing and they see the facilities that are sprouting up in the shadows of Silverstone. And I think for a lot of people, they want to be a part of that. And for Dan, I think given how long he's been with Red Bull and he actually joined Red Bull back in 2006, he started as an aerodynamics team lead. He led the aerodynamics department up to 2014 during that period, of course, is when Sebastian Vettel won all of those titles. So there's some strong linkages there between Dan and Sebastian Vettel, but I just think it comes down to opportunity. The, the anonymity to be able to to lead a department and to be able to make chief critical decisions but i think this is this is a good move and obviously it's going to be a blow for for the Red Bull team, but that said, all of the heavy lifting in terms of getting the 2022 car done and ready is already finished, mm-hmm. that his his work effort there is done, the car is done, and we know that there won't be significant innovation and change to these cars over the next couple of years simply because the formula won't allow it. So his contributions to Red Bull are largely finished at this point. Mm-hmm. I think his role at uh, Aston Martin is really going to be trimming and modifying and tweaking whatever the 2022 car is that they came up with prior to his arrival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great move and uh, a great signing for Aston Martin. So it'll be uh, it's going to be fun to watch and see where this team develops and I mean it can't get much worse than last year. I mean we 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 talked about it almost ad nauseum over the past uh, season how 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 big our expectations were for them based on what they did in 2020 and then they they largely fell flat and frustrated us all season long but you know that that's actually a good segue for the next story frustration being the common theme here and that is Marcin Budkowski who was the executive director at Alp- uh, Alpine has uh, left the team and it seems like every year uh, that uh, they seem to you know, split ways with top level people within that organization. I mean, this, this is a team formerly known as Renault, who have been in the sport. When did they come back in after? Was it 2015? 2015. Yeah, after they yeah. bought out the, uh, the the Lotus team and then uh, rebranded and, and, and all that. So it is, you know, it it just uh, continually frustrates me that uh, that they can't get it right. And you think every time that they they bring in a new regime and and they bring in new people, you you always think, or at least I think, okay, now it looks like they've they've got people in place. Now they might be able to get this this project point in the right direction. And I just feel like we're we're caught in this vicious cycle. It just seems that it, it's like it's like COVID. It just never seems to get any better. <laughs> I mean, that's a horrible way to compare like a 
thing to compare Alpine to, but I mean, you get what I'm saying is that they just, they're stuck in this vicious cycle and it just never seems to improve with them. And they just seem to be floundering. You stole all of my thunder and I won't repeat everything you just said due to the, uh, do the do the or do the duplication of efforts, but yeah, I completely agree. It just seems that this team constantly churns out talent at the top. And remember, mm-hmm. it was only a year ago that we were talking about Cyril Abitable being shown the door mm-hmm. at at Renault, then becoming Alpine. And I think the assumption at that point was that Budkowski, having just come over from the FIA a couple of years ago, where he was deeply integrated into the technical department. I think the assumption last year was that, hey, with Cyril out the door, he's going to be promoted to team principal. But he ended up in this weird collaborative position where he was co-running the team. He was informally the team principal and was an acting team principal, but wasn't getting paid and didn't have the title of team principal. And then it began to, it began to leak that of course, Mr. Rossi, team CEO or Alpine CEO, was heavily involved in the decision making of the team. To me, it just it's got my head spinning a little bit that if you want to build something, you need some degree of stability and you can't just have a turnstile of people coming and going constantly, which is what this seems to be. And it's funny because I saw a, a tweet or a message on Reddit when I was reading some of the comments about this. And this is horrible. And please, please don't take this as me reflecting poorly on any type of stereotype, but somebody had made this great comment that obviously the Alpine team is part of the broader Renault family and the Mm -hmm. Renault company is partly state owned. So you have this Formula One team that is an extension of their very kind of exclusive prestige but low sales volume performance arm but it's part of a much bigger partly state-owned company and it was just reflecting on the fact that there's this sheer massive volume of bureaucracy and middle management throughout all of Renault and there's a lack of stability sometimes and that there's a lack of concrete decision making because people aren't necessarily willing to make those risky decisions and you just end up with this churn of middle managers and it just doesn't lead to any degree of stability or excellence and unfortunately that's what we're starting to see here. Well, you know, I mean, talk about uh, this turnstile of people leaving. Uh, Four-time world champion Alain Prost, who has been a um, advisor to the team over the past uh, several years. I mean, he drove for uh, Renault way back in the, uh, the early 1980s for a couple of uh, seasons early in his uh, career. He's split from the team and, uh, well, he was uh, not very happy about the way that it was announced. He wrote on his Instagram, quote, I am very disappointed how this news has been announced. It was agreed that we would announce together with Alpine F1 team. No respect. Sorry, I have refused the offer you made to me in Abu Dhabi for the 2022 season because of a personal relationship and I was right to the Enstone and Viri team I will miss you end quote so Prost obviously uh, not uh, not very happy about that and uh, a little bit uh, you know salty about the, the, the way that uh, it uh, it has gone down and you know the, the interesting thing is now is that apparently we're kind of going a little bit to a full circle here is that the speculation is that Otmar Safnauer might uh, actually join the team and he has the relationship with the BWT, the, uh, you know, the, the, the water company that have uh, sponsored uh, Aston Martin slash Racing Point for the past uh, couple of years. 
And it just depends where you're getting your news from. Some sources say it sounds like it's a done deal that uh, that Safnauer is going to become, uh, you know, is going to Alpine. He's bringing BWT with him. And then some other sources are a little bit more vague, and a little bit noncommittal, saying that, uh, you know, he hasn't really clearly indicated what his uh, next move is going to be in Formula One or wherever it might be. So it's, uh, it's I don't know, it's, it's just a, a bit of a messy situation all around. And, you know, personally, I like Otmar, Otmar Safnauer, pardon, uh, pardon me, and I just hope that if he ends up going there, I just hope he goes into the situation with eyes wide open. I completely and, agree. You know, I think there's that that uh, that that uh, organization. I think it's just uh, you know full of politics and uh, you know machinations and all sorts of things. And I think that uh, you know to go from a very small kind of really family run team, almost in the sense that that Force India was. I know this. It's it's probably expanded and grown a little bit since Lawrence Stroll got involved. But I mean, going from that Force India background to like the Alpine slash uh, Renault behemoth, I think is going to be a completely uh, different uh, experience. And I hope if he does go there, that it works out for him. Let, let, let's let, let's just say that. Mr. Daly, can I please yep. pour out some tea for our younger listeners real quick on this topic? Go for please, it. Yes, please. Some, so, yeah. so this is interesting. So Alain Prost, four-time world champion, mm-hmm. the the greatest French F1 driver of all time. I don't think that's debatable. Nope. He'd been in certain capacities with the Alpine slash Renault team really since their re-entry into Formula One. Originally, it was more of a uh, kind of a celebratory role. Then it became a formal director role, but non-executive director role. It's become pretty clear in the last few weeks, in the last few months, that his beef with that team was specifically with Alpine CEO Rossi. Mm-hmm. And says... Says Alain Prost, and I'm quoting here, he commented that Rossi, quote unquote, wants to be alone and quote unquote, wants all the light. And furthermore, Hmm. says Prost, it's a question of respect. Relationships become more and more complicated. I felt that there was a lot of jealousy, inferring Hmm. that Rossi was jealous of Prost's presence within the team. Now, during, and again, I want to be careful here that I'm not kind of shading Rossi as this tyrannical monster because <laughs> we're not getting his side of the story here. Yeah, it could yeah, very yeah. much be that Rossi sees that, hey, this is a team that's really broken and we've got some poor leaders and I've got to clean house and start over. And of course, he's never going to be able to come out on Twitter and kind of re kind of fight back on what Prost is saying that he's in this difficult position where he's still in the role. He's still a professional. He has to kind of turn a blind eye to all of this. Mm-hmm. But somebody did mention during our spaces chat tonight, and I had completely forgotten in this that Alain Prost once owned a Formula One team and almost immediately after he took ownership of the team it all but cratered in terms of on-track performance and in terms of financial viability so it's also very possible that Alain Prost just wasn't delivering what they were hoping he would deliver as a as a director within that organization and I don't know this I just want to make sure that I'm not shading I'm not throwing too much shade at Rossi when he doesn't get to tell his side of the story due to his professional uh, circumstances. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. No, just re- remind me if, um, you know, for a moment here. So the, the Prost F1 team was named Prost. Did he take over Ligier? 
Was it was that yeah. how that went? It, it was that right. Was it? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So that that's going back uh, quite a while. And I mean, the only race that I think Ligier ever won was back in the mid '90s when Olivier Panis, uh, also a French driver, won at uh, Monaco. Do you remember? Like after that race, I think maybe it was there was some sort of like photo or media op uh, afterwards where he actually drove around in the streets of Monaco in his car. I specifically remember it without a crash helmet on or anything. It's just like, oh yeah, I'm I'm just out for a drive in my, my Formula <laughs> One car. I mean, it was pretty cool, but you know, it was kind of funny at the same time, a little bit uh, surreal. I mean, I'm sure you can search that up on uh, on Google or whatever, find some pictures of that. Olivier Panis, P-A-N-I-S. You know, so anyways. Okay, well, let's, let's go on to the next one. Next story, what do we have here? Williams. So they've also split with somebody this week. Uh, they have... Um, uh, parted ways with their engineering director, Adam Carter, who's been with the team since 2016, and basically took control of the mess that was uh, that was left uh, when Patty Lowe oh. left at the, the beginning of 2019. I mean, is that still not one of the most bizarre and anticlimactic and just, uh, you know, I, I never expected that team to crater the way that they did when, when Patty Lowe went there. I mean, he was a guy that would have been in Mercedes. I mean, he was like, I, I thought at the time when he was going to go from the Mercedes to Williams, I thought this is a great move. And I mean, it was, I, I never thought it would turn out to be the disaster. And we, we don't need to sugarcoat it because it was a disaster. And I mean, they are still suffering from that because I mean, they were basically a best of the rest kind of team prior to 2017. I mean, yeah. it's just the way it was, right? Well, let, let's go back to 2014. So 2014 was the the new era. It was the first year with the turbo hybrids. Yep. Williams, and this is unfathomable today. They finished third in the constructors championship and their mm-hmm. drivers, including Valtteri Bottas, were regularly scoring podiums. Yep. They were scoring podiums in 15, 16. They even scored a podium. And again, the circumstances were pretty unique, but Lance Stroll scored that that wild podium oh, in Baku, Baku in yeah. Great point. But yeah. it just... The challenge with with Formula One, especially with a role like the one Patty had, is it's not like the NBA or the NHL where you've got a bad coach and he's struggling and you fire that coach and you get a new coach comes in and he rebuilds the culture and he rebuilds the system and you make a couple of trades. When, when you've instituted the design philosophies of an individual like Patty Lowe for years and years and years, you're building a two or a three year runway. So even though they'd fired him, their runway in terms of the design and construction of that car was cemented for two or three years. Mm-hmm. So even after he's gone, you are stuck to what he had built. So he's gone in 2019, but they're basically stuck for that car with 2020. And then they carried the 2020 car over to 2021. It's miraculous that they were able to make the development and the advancements that they did do in 21. But I would love, because I never expected that, I would love for somebody to do a deep dive and write a a long form article or a book on what went wrong when Patty was there. Was it a power struggle with Frank? Was it that this team simply didn't have the Mm -hmm. resources? Was it that the organization was as compartmentalized and broken as it's been reported. I don't know. I would love to know. You know, I, I've never been to Grove and been to the factory or to the uh, design office. I, I, I mean, you have. I mean, what was your impression? I mean, it, it's one thing to be a visitor, but what was your impression when you were there? Just the, the 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 overall size of the operation that they have. So the scale was big, and I think even by modern F one standards, the scale was certainly quite large. It's it's a big facility. You can see the wind tunnel from the street. Um, but at the same time, there was a sense of, 
I'm trying to I'm trying to choose the correct words for this. The factory is based on the edge of a small village in the countryside. So it's a picturesque settings. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But when you show up to the gate and you go through security, it's a very homely, welcoming, intimate environment. And Hmm. everyone that I've ever interacted with there, they seem extremely friendly. They're very welcoming. And then again, if if you're a fan like me that goes to the factory, you're generally dealing with people that work in hospitality. They're there specifically to deliver that type of experience. Um, But from everything I've seen, at least from a facilities perspective, they seem to be world-class, to be totally honest. And and Mm -hmm. I've driven through Bricksworth. I've driven through Braxworth. I've seen the Red Bull facility. It's a big facility. Now, what's actually happening within those facilities and in the design offices and, and where they're machining parts and where they're operating the wind tunnel, you don't get to see a lot of that. So it's very possible that, hey, maybe structurally they're sound, but everything that's happening inside those structures is broken or simply underfunded. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, it, it's kind of an interesting story here too. What with Carter leaving, but it's not like there's there, there's a big void uh, because last year their their new uh, team principal Yas Capito actually recruited a new technical chief, uh, a fellow by the name of Francois Xavier de Maison. And uh, so he's there. So um, th- this uh, just sounds almost uh, to the point that um, that Carter's role with the team just became a little bit uh, redundant. It sounded like that they went out and, and Capito found somebody that, uh, you know, ticked all the boxes for the role and the vision that uh, that he has for the team. So it'll be uh, another team that that uh, that we have to keep an eye on because I I have a big soft spot uh, for Williams. I was a huge fan of Nigel, uh, Nigel Mansell when I was a kid growing up, and I was a big fan of Damon Hill. Not so much of JV, but <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess there's the Canadian co- connection there. But you know, they they were a winning team. They were a good. They were a great team. I, I went back. Um, I, I mentioned off the top of the show. I went and watched the 2009 season on F1 TV. I actually went back. And I think they had the 1986 or the 87 British Grand Prix. It was Nigel Mansell and Nelson Piquet in the the, the the Williams. I think it was the FW11 Honda turbocharged engine. And it was crazy. They were lapping cars after like 10 laps. I mean, McLaren, that was about a year or so before they really became the force in Formula One. And it was kind of going back and forth. I mean, we, we talk about these days, Red Bull and uh, Mercedes, but in back then, late 80s, it was it was um, Williams and uh, McLaren, but I mean that was just crazy. And then of course we had turbocharged cars. We had the normally aspirated cars. We had two championships uh, effectively. We had the, the the main world championships, and then we had a championship, and then we had I think they called it like the Jim Clark Cup for the like the basically the best of the normally aspirated cars. But then you know of course you had the, all these cars sort of intermixed, right? And uh, I, I couldn't believe it. Like I say, they were lapping cars after like literally 10 laps. It was uh, crazy stuff. Anyways, what, what do you have there? You're, you're holding something up that uh, we, can, we can see on camera, but maybe uh, yeah. explain it for the benefit uh, of everybody listening on the podcast. It was actually sitting on the desk next to me. This was a souvenir I actually picked up at Grove. This is a gear out of the gearbox from a 2005 Williams Formula One car. Oh, cool. I can't remember which of the two cars it was in, but when I bought it, it was in, they kind of had this nice kind of, set up where you can buy souvenirs and things like that. But Mm -hmm. to be able to buy a piece out of a car was pretty cool. And it's neat because it's actually 
got a light, it's kind of a serial number on it and it's got some etchings. But one of the cool things about this, and they talk about this when you're there, is every single piece in their car has a predetermined mileage. So when you hmm. put a specific piece in a car, like a gear in a gearbox, um, they actually record that in their computer system. So they'll know this gear went in on this day and it's had, say, 170 kilometers of mileage, it needs to be serviced, or it's got 1700 kilometers on it, that's past the threshold for suitable performance, we're going to pull it out. So this piece had gone in, you can see there's a little bit of wear on Mm -hmm. the teeth. And ultimately, it would have been deemed no longer worthy from a performance perspective. But when I actually bought it, it still had fluid on it, like actual lubricant on it. So (laughs) I should have kept it on, but I did wipe it off. But yeah, one of my favorite little souvenirs. Uh, that, that's cool. But you know, the way the way that they maintain these cars, and uh, sometimes, you know, I say cars with like the inverted uh, commas around them. I mean, the, the maintenance is almost like uh, for, for like aircraft or something like that. It uh, yeah, really exactly. is uh, amazing. Exactly. Okay. Um, let's see. Where are we now? L- let's take another quick break. We'll come back. And we're, this next one, I think, is going to take up. There's a couple of stories here involving uh, Zach Brown, CEO of McLaren. And I think this will generate a lot of discussion between the two of us. So uh, l- let's break now for uh, a breather and we'll pick it up on the other side. So don't drop your clutch. Don't stall. We'll be back in just a moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, welcome back. And yes, Zach Brown, CEO of McLaren, he's been in the news uh, this past week for a couple of things. Uh, Last week, we spoke at length just at our bemusement, our complete uh, disbelief, like everybody else out there, that the fact that this whole investigation into the shenanigans and the craziness that uh, marked the end of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix and the fallout uh, after the race uh, still is... Well, I mean, have they even started now? <laughs> I know as of last week, that uh, certainly wasn't uh, the, the case. Anyways, uh, Zach Brown um, uh, was uh, talking about this uh, this week, and he says that uh, the FIA's report into what happened at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix not only needs to state what he says was right and what was wrong, but also what action will be taken in the future. Now, I, I think this is good because uh, I'm I'm a big fan of Zach Brown. I think that the, the job that he's done for McLaren and how he's under his guidance and the people that he's brought into the team has completely reversed their 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 fortunes and so I think that uh, every time he sits up and says something, then, you know, or he stands up and says something, I really take a, take notice to what uh, he has to say. Anyways, uh, Brown had to say, quote, I think with all controversies in sport, in time, as soon as the next season starts, the wounds start to heal. But I do think that the FI needs to come out with a, here's what happened, and here's how and why we think it happened. Here, Here's what was right, here's what was wrong. And whatever they're going to come out with in the report, and then show that they've taken action to make sure it does doesn't happen again. Uh, end quote. So absolutely, I think that's a hundred percent what happens. Uh, you know, um, you know, needs to happen. But he does go on with a with a further quote, uh, and he denied any hints or suggestions of a conspiracy against either Lewis or Mercedes. 
Anyways, uh, he had to say, quote, I don't think this was a malicious decision. So for those that uh, might have a view that the, the sport's corrupt, etc., I don't agree with that. Do I potential? Do I think potentially a different decision could have been made? Yes, probably. But I want to wait to see what the FIA comes out with. I think we've all seen in sport before referees make decisions that people disagree with. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. End quote. And yes, I I completely agree with that. I don't think it was a malicious decision, as Zach Brown says. Like like we talked about for many many weeks afterwards, that they 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 just they were stuck in an awkward position, and it was just awkward the way that they tried to resolve the race. And obviously, it's had huge fallouts. But the the key the core of this uh, you know this quote from Zach Brown is that they you know they they have to be completely transparent about it. Right? They have to say this is why it happened, why we think it happened. This was right. This is wrong. And this is what we're going to do to prevent it from happening in the future. I mean that that's basically what he says. In in a nutshell, and I think that's exactly what they need to do. And I think what fans will be looking for, and I think what other teams will be looking for, is whether the FIA is willing to demonstrate some degree of grace and humility here, because mm-hmm. that's not what's happened so far. And I think that that ill-conceived release shortly after the events of December 12th, where they suggested that the confusion and frustration stemmed from quote unquote, a misunderstanding or the fact that fans were misunderstanding the rules, which clearly weren't applied, just kind of fueled the fire. So I think I agree with everything Zach says, and I'm becoming a bigger fan of Zach by the day. And every time I see him quoted in an article, I pause and I read because I generally really like the way that he articulates himself. And yep. I like his Agreed. position on on most on most subjects. I think while it's good that finally there's some movement and the FIA had to come out last week just to remind us that, hey, okay, we're going to do this report that we committed to doing. Now we're going to start. It's kind of shocking that they're going to release it on the Friday of the Bahrain Grand Prix weekend, which I didn't realize, and I know I'm probably the last one to pick up on this, but they're releasing that report on Friday the day, the Friday of the Grand Prix weekend. So rather than releasing it in January mm-hmm. or February, they are going to wait till the Grand Prix weekend. So if I'm Liberty and I'm the teams, I'm going to be pretty frustrated because this is, and that's the weekend that's supposed to see a sprint race as well, that you're setting this weekend up to be this exciting celebration of Formula One. We're back. We're introducing the new era, the new regulations. Oh, and by the way, here's the report for everyone to dissect and talk about and argue about for the entire weekend. Seems very, very strange that Liberty would allow F1 to kind of overshadow their marquee season opening event like that. Yeah, totally. I mean, like you say, they must be really frustrated about that because that's just going to reignite the whole discussion because I can't imagine not... I mean, this was a highly divisive... um, incident right i mean to put it mildly lewis fans were angry max fans were happy but like i said last week i mean if even if you're the most hardcore max verstappen fans somewhere deep down you you must be feeling you know you, you must recognize that hey this could have gone the other way this could have been this could have been max out front and he could have been robbed i mean just from a, 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 the way like an operating point of view the way that formula one is one that i mean if if this doesn't bother you on on some level regardless of uh, you know where your your loyalties lie with regardless which team or which driver if this doesn't bug you in some way then honestly you know i i don't <laughs> i don't know why you're watching this sport because it you know it bothers me a lot it bothers you a lot and it bothers everybody else regardless like i say i mean regardless if you're the most hardcore lewis fan or not 
you you should have an issue with the way that this uh, that this went down. And like I said last week, I mean, Max beat him fair and square on the track, but it's the whole circumstances that led up to those last couple of laps that that's what the debate is about, and 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 rightly so. And that's what they need to come down and or, or really drill down on and come out with. This is why it happened, and this is how we can prevent it from happening in the future because it shouldn't happen again. Because once is okay, it was bad enough it happened one time, but if it happened again in the future, I mean, not only does your your sport have a bit of a tarnish on it now, now it's got a massive crisis and a serious credibility problem and then they could see like a mass exodus of uh, of fans at that point right Okay, now let's move on to the next one. So Zach, uh, still talking about uh, these uh, operational uh, portions of uh, Formula One. He was uh, talking uh, now about uh, stewards, and this is a discussion that you and I have had uh, a good many times uh, over the months. Anyways, uh, Zach had to say, quote, I wouldn't want uh, to be a referee in any sport. It's no different than in football. Did he trip him up? Did he not? Did he throw an elbow or not throw an elbow? There's a lot of subjectivity to these calls. There could be better judgment calls made, but I don't think you're ever going to get it up 100% right, and I don't think you do in any sport. Otherwise, the football fans don't have someone to yell at when they see a call, which inevitably goes according to, was it your team that the call went for or against? It's the lack of consistency. I think more full-time stewards would help because I think the stewards are doing the best they can with the flying in and out. Some of them are there a lot, some are less. IndyCar pretty much has full-time stewards, so I think that is part of the solution, end quote. And and, you know, I, I don't really have anything to to add there. I mean, uh, this is basically what, what you and I would both uh, like to see. However, neither of us <laughs> combined even, and I know this is a bit of a mind blower, but even combined, you and I do not have the, uh, uh, let's just say the... Um, presence Zach Brown obviously has and he's obviously a voice that uh, that that if he's saying something then people should be listening to him that that's that that make these decisions yeah stewarding and the way that stewarding is conducted is expected to be addressed in the FIA's ongoing analysis so that report that we just spoke to a couple of minutes ago there should be a section or it's expected that there'll be a subsection within that document that makes mm-hmm. some recommendations around the stewarding process. And there's uh, some stats here that I pulled out of an article, a great article from the race.com. And I'm just going to quote the article here. Um, verbatim during 2021, a total of 41 different people acted as FIA stewards across the 22 race weekends, 41 different people, each stewarding panel usually, but not always comprises four members, including one of the available pool of four chairmen, one steward nominated by the national sporting authority and two other FIA appointed stewards since 2010, one of those FIA appointed stewards has been the driver stewards. These are usually X or XF1 drivers, although during 2021, sports car legend Tom Christensen, who tested F1 machinery but never started a Grand Prix, was used on two occasions. Mm-hmm. Stewards are also supported by a comprehensive database of past incidents and decisions that allow easy access to various precedents, which is a means to increase the consistency of their decisions. There has been resistance to the idea of permanent stewards in F1. Last year, for example, race director Michael Massey said that this was because of fear of what he called, quote unquote, perceived bias when there is a permanent steward. Now, Zach (laughs) Brown goes on to indicate and has spoken to the fact as well that it might be very difficult to recruit somebody to do this full time. It's it's very much a thankless job. And if I'm a former Formula One driver, do I really want to sign up to a 
8, 16, 20, 22, 23 race commitment to stewarding where quite frankly, you are always in the spotlight and your decisions will always be challenged. So I agree, full-time professional stewards, absolutely required. Getting somebody to commit to that, I think is going to prove more complicated. Getting somebody who is qualified to commit to that is going to be more challenging. You know, I I, I still think that uh, we have to see, like we see in uh, North American sports, where you have like officiating crews, right? You have the same crew for the NFL or the NBA, whatever it is that, uh, you you know, so I I don't see at this point with the amount of money that they're pulling in that they don't establish like stewarding you and train qualified people that already have a background in in motorsport, in racing and get them to that level. And then, you know, maybe you, you know, the the commitment is uh, obviously going to be a lot easier instead of like sending the same people over and over and over again you have a pool of people and you can get them to go to whichever races or i mean it obviously be a, a lot easier and these say double or triple header weekends it's like okay well you're doing this race and this race right you show up for this race you fly off to the next one or whatever it is i mean the the, the logistics of it uh, are a little bit to be on the scope of this conversation however i think the like the, the core of the conversation still remains is why are you know like what's holding them back like i, I find that uh, that that quote from Massey that the, that uh, he thinks that there's a potential bias for people, you know, if they have like regular people doing it, but or appointed people, I, I'm not sure exactly the, the way he's kind of going at it. But I mean, the thing is, I mean, the pool of people you know, regardless, it's fairly small. So, I mean, I, I don't really see that as like a, a real argument because regardless if they're, they're trained or full time, I mean, you're still pulling people from the same you know, small pool. So what, what does it matter if they're full-time or just like one-off? I mean, you know, I, I just, I don't see the potential of bias being a, um, you know, a reason not to do it. I, I think that, uh, you know, the, it, it's completely the reverse case. Totally agree. Totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, move on. Uh, We're going to talk now about uh, the Mercedes. And if uh, you are a fan of uh, the other nine, one of the other nine teams, uh, you're probably maybe shaking and nervous a little bit because apparently the new W13 is going to be boosted by a brand new turbocharger. And I mean, the one thing I think we can safely say about uh, Mercedes over the past, uh, well, basically decade is that these cars have not been underpowered. Uh, Anyways, it's kind of interesting too because uh, you know we've got these um, new e- uh, this new e10 uh, fuel coming in and uh, that's going to be uh, well 10 percent of uh, the fuel mixture will actually come from new uh, renewable uh, uh, resources anyways it's uh, predicted that uh, perhaps uh, this is going to release re- um, sorry lead to a reduction in up to 20 percent or sorry 20 horsepower not 20 percent but uh, a 20 horsepower deficit and uh, it's uh, it's interesting uh, that this uh, new fuel would actually do that but how However, um, anytime that you hear that Mercedes has upgraded any component on their car, I think if you're one of the other teams, you're you're automatically going to be a little bit concerned about that. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. I just think it's one of those things where the other teams are kind of rolling their eyes. I also, and and I apologize because I should know better because I like to take some pride in being able to bring some technical prowess to this podcast. I thought that Mercedes had performed a turbocharger upgrade either before or during the previous campaign, which would have meant that that part would now be frozen. So I'm guessing they (coughs) didn't, or maybe I misunderstood the regulation because of course the power units that the teams are going to bring into 2022 have to be Mm -hmm. frozen. And they were allowed to perform 
some limited upgrades to certain components throughout 2021. But once they had updated and modified those certain components, then that engine basically became frozen and you couldn't do anything with that engine now between 2022 and 2025, except for... Mm, updates that might improve reliability. And again, as Bryson says, there's a very fine line between doing updates and tweaks to improve reliability that don't ultimately improve performance. But I also was of the impression that this part had been upgraded during the season. So it's interesting that mm -hmm. you know Mercedes is still in a position where they're deploying parts that should presumably add some additional power to, to the car. Well, you know, that that is always that sort of like age old uh, discussion about, uh, you know, uh, reliability uh, improvements and, uh, and upgrades like you just uh, mentioned. And that's where it uh, be becomes interesting in Formula One. I know it's it's all about the, you know, the, the rules and the regulations, but uh, it, it is fascinating that they are sometimes able to find these uh, loopholes in the rules and, and really exploit them uh, to their advantage uh, and, 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 and come up with a, a winning design on what, whatever it might be. But, uh, yeah, so we'll be watching that, uh, obviously, and, uh, we're going to take one final, uh, break. And then we got uh, a bunch of like real quick hits that we're going to close the, the show out with. So, uh, guys, uh, don't go away. We will be back again. And, uh, well, we will go home at some point, but, uh, anyways, first of short break, we'll be back in a moment. Don't go away. Okay, and welcome back. So the first story is kind of a back to the future or maybe a back to the past. It's a retro story. Anyways, Formula One this season is going back to 90-minute practice sessions, uh, which yes. is, uh, yeah, they they went from 90 minutes down to 60, uh, but now this is uh, being uh, reversed, which uh, to me makes a, a lot of sense. Um, well, I mean, anyways, you, you seem very excited about this one. So wh why do you take it away, Mark? I actually, I'm probably less excited about it now than I was earlier. I okay. just, to me, it's like an extra 60 minutes of Formula One. But one of the reasons that they cut it back, other than the fact that we were in the middle of a pandemic and they were looking to cut costs, was one of the criticisms of free practice one and two, which have historically been 90 minutes long and free practice three on the Saturday is only 60 minutes long. One of the reasons they cut it back was because mm -hmm. they simply made for the crappiest viewing experience ever because you would have at times no cars on the track. So people are tuning in to watch practice and there's nothing happening. So the thought was, hey, if we slice 30 minutes off, the car team still want to get the same number of laps in, but sure. the track's going to be busier. So maybe it's a 60 minute viewing experience, but there's more going on. And that's mm -hmm. actually exactly what happens. So, you know, as much as I'd like to see 90 minutes, I also don't think the teams were necessarily taking advantage of the time allocated to them. And the cars were spending way too much time in the garage. And it really sucked if you tuned in watching free practice when you should be working <laughs> and there's no one on the track for seven minutes at a time so you know what yeah. again it's cool it's cool if you're trackside and you get to experience it but i think from a tv viewing experience 60 minutes is way better yeah totally but uh you know i, I don't actually mind uh, so much I, I don't really get to, too much of a chance to uh tune into the um to the to the practice sessions like if i was working at home i might uh, have it running on in in the background and uh, if something interesting seemed to be happening i kind of toggle between uh you know between uh, you know browsers or whatever see what was going on but but uh, yeah, I mean, practice is the opportunity for them to get the the, the cars dialed in and figure out what's going on and all these uh, good sorts of things. So 
you know, I, I, I think from that point of view, I think it's a good one. So next story, Formula One's new rules theoretically will cut the gap between the front, front and back half of the grid. So anyways, they believe that the equation of restrictive error rules plus the cost cap should actually cut the gap between the front and back of the grid after only a year. So this uh, remains to, to be seen. But in theory, it's, you know, it's it's a great thing. But again, I mean, we are just going to sit here and speculate about it. I mean, we can look at models, we can look at data, we can look at all these things. But until we see these cars all lined up and we see them get all the kinks ironed out with all these uh, new untested and untried cars, that um, it's all unproven. We all hope for the best, but we don't know whether or not this is going to pan out in reality. Yeah, I don't have a lot to to add to this other than the fact that everything, all the heavy lifting, all of the pain that Formula One's gone through over the last couple of years is to get to a state where there isn't as big a spread amongst the teams on the track come Grand Prix Sunday. If we don't see something significant, I think it's going to be a resounding disappointment. But that said, Mm -hmm. I also know that some teams are going to, despite everything I said earlier about the fact that the formulas are designed now to prevent cases where teams are way off the marker because or to enable teams from getting way too far ahead. Yeah. I think there's still going to be a little bit of room and it's one of the reasons that the FIA and Formula 1 have agreed to keep DRS in the sport because they're not confident that every team's going to hit the formula just right in year 1 and it might take a couple of years, but sure. if we did see the spread, if we saw the gap halved in year 1, that would be a huge huge accomplishment. Oh, yeah, 100%. I, I agree. And the FIA's head of single-seaters, uh, Nicholas Tombazis, uh, said, quote, I think that currently the best to worst team gap is probably about three seconds depending on the circuit. I hope af- I hope that after maybe a year, we will have less than half of that. That is what I would hope, but we'll have to see, end quote. So, I mean, if you're like Haas or Williams, I mean, you're only slightly less crappy than you were <laughs> prior to the, uh, the introduction of the rules. Because, I mean, let's face it. I mean, okay, it doesn't look good or it hasn't looked good uh, the way that it's been in the, you know, the previous formula. But let, let's be realistic. I mean, if you're still a second and a half off the pace, I mean, that that's still a huge, huge gap between yourself and the fastest car. Second and a half, that, that's a country mile in Formula One terms. Yeah, and it's at the way, the best way to look at this is it's not a second and a half a lap. Think about it over a race distance, right? If you're running 70 laps and you are a second and a half off of the pack, you are going to be lapped and Formula One cannot cannot continue to live in a world where cars and teams are consistently lapped. And it's mm-hmm. not as bad as it was in 2014. And Tim Haraney talked about this, like Lewis and Nico were lapping everyone up to fourth, fifth place. Yep. They were almost lapping third place cars. Like we just can't live in that world anymore. And a second and a half in a, in isolation doesn't seem crazy, but when you spread that over a race distance, it's just absurd and we can't live in that world anymore. Yeah, I- exactly. Right. And well, uh, I mean, like I was just saying, I mean, it, it isn't proven yet. We all hope for the best, but, uh, certainly, I mean, it, you know, some of it's on the rules, some of it's on the teams them, themselves, but I mean, the, the fact is you're always going to have fast cars and slower cars, but it just, uh, like you say, it doesn't look great if the best cars are lapping basically everybody else but them, but, but themselves. 
Okay, uh, moving on uh, to this one. Uh, this uh, has a bit of a tie-in to the uh, the Australian Open uh, tennis tournament and uh, Novak uh, Djokovic and that whole saga about his uh, non-vaccination and then his whole fight to stay in Australia before ultimately being uh, deported. So um, Formula One drivers and teams have been told to vaccinate or stay at home. And so they're insisting on 100% vaccine compliance. Uh, if uh, anybody within the Formula One, um, you know, bubble circuits, group, whatever you want to call it, you know, wants to enter the, 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 the country. Now, the good part about this is despite not having an Australian Grand Prix for the past uh, couple of years, because... You know, I, I hope that I'm not just every time I think about Formula One, I think about uh, the, the the pandemic that I'm going to because I mean, basically for me, the pandemic started when the the Australian Grand Prix got canceled back in the spring of 2020. Yeah, that's that's agree. when life Same. changed was that that yeah. bloody weekend. That and was the oh crap moment. That oh crap, pretty much, it's right? It's just become real. Yeah, that that's when yeah, that's was when reality came up and smashed us all in the face. But you know, at least we are two years later. So the Victorian government and Formula One are committed on both sides to see that the Australian Grand Prix goes ahead as planned from April seventh to tenth. Um, you know, following a two-year absence, which you know is not unusual considering all the other races and other venues that uh, have not been able to hold a Formula One race uh, during COVID. But, you know, I, I'm I'm really, um, you know, encouraged by this. And I mean, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that you should be vaxxed or not vaxxed. And that that's not the discussion. I mean, they've decided that, you know, for, for them, this is what we want. If you want to come, you know, if, if you want to get a vaccine, then get your vaccine. If you don't want to, that's fine. You don't have to, but you just can't come to Australia. You're not going to be able to, to, to participate in the Grand Prix. And that doesn't matter if you're making sandwiches in the team motorhome or you're Lewis Hamilton, you're Max Verstappen. And I'm not commenting. I don't know what their vax status is, but you know what I'm saying? It doesn't matter where you are. If you're one of the drivers or one of the support staff, that if you want to come and participate, you have to be vaccinated. I, I think that just makes sense. You know, you can't have any loopholes if, uh, you know, you're the authorities there. It's either just like one way or, you know, you either enforce it or you don't. And I, I think that it just it just kind of makes sense. So hopefully we don't see any high profile names there, but... <laughs> we'll see. But I think at this point, they're all, I think they've all had their, their, their vax at this point, haven't they? Well, we know they are, right? Because they wouldn't have been able to get into Bahrain, the Kingdom oh, of Saudi Oh, true. Arabia, Great point. UAA. Yes. So yeah. that yeah. was kind of a litmus test. And I think there was probably a little bit of nervousness as they were heading back to the Middle East at the sure. end of last season. Like, ee. But it looks like it was smooth. So everyone understands it shouldn't be a problem. I would add that the, the Djokovic situation was a really bad look for Australia. And I love Australia. But the political infighting, the fact that the prime minister was pointing his finger at the state of Victoria and blaming them for the fact that he was able to get in wasn't a good look. Now, separate from the COVID discussion, one of our longtime listeners, Joe, who actually moved to Australia right at the onset of the pandemic, announced on Spaces tonight that he has grandstand tickets for oh, the Melbourne awesome. Grand Prix. So cool. super excited for him. We also learned on Spaces tonight that Jen has tickets to Miami. So some of our listeners getting set up. Oh, and nice. also Micah, who was on the Spaces chat tonight, announced that he has tickets for Silverstone. So we that have awesome. listeners traveling 
traveling That's awesome. all over the world to see Grand Prix. So knock on wood that everything goes smoothly for them and they have an excellent time. Well, I mean, at least for uh, Australia, um, the, the Australian Grand Prix Corporation boss, Andrew Westacott, uh, said, quote, we've got a commitment from the Victorian government that the event's going ahead. We've got a commitment from Formula One that they're coming here for round three. We're selling tickets like hotcakes and we're 80 a days away from the event. So everything is happening. Everything is getting ready. And I can't wait to host the best drivers in the world in new cars on a new track, end quote. And let's not uh, forget that Albert Park is one of these tracks that's been uh, modified. It's been reprofiled and really awesome looking call. forward to, to, to see what uh, in, <laughs> what the changes are. And, uh, and, and you know, we, we've seen it work at other tracks over the past year, year and a half that have uh, made changes to it. And uh, I'm really excited to it because, I mean, let's let's be fair. It hasn't always been the most exciting racing at Albert Park over the years. So I'm really hoping the changes that they made really work to it. Because, it, I mean, it's a beautiful venue. It is uh, one of the, the, the places I'd like to go most to go watch a Formula One race. I mean, it's one of the places, Australia is a place I'd love to go and visit, period. But uh, that uh, it's just a stunning location to, to, to host a race. And I just can't wait to see Formula One get back there and just... Uh, well, what about um, two and a half months? Can't come quick enough. All right. Couple last uh, stories. Um, okay, well, Helmut Marco. well, he's always one uh, to kind of say whatever is on his mind, which sometimes can kind of trigger people. Anyways, uh, Helmut <laughs> says that, that there's, <laughs> including you, <laughs> Helmut uh, believes that 2022 will see the battle between Red Bull and Mercedes pick up where it left off after last year. Well, I don't know if it can pick up exactly where it left off, considering how the last season ended, how the last race ended, but at least, you know, from the level of uh, competitiveness, you know, we've seen some great moments between Red Bull and uh, Mercedes over the past uh, year or so. I would love to see Max and Lewis go at it again. I mean, as long as it doesn't get too crazy and too insane. I mean, there there was a number of flashpoints in the 2021 season, even before we got to Abu Dhabi. But, uh, you know, just uh, on the point of watching one win and the other win kind of go back and forth all season long. I mean, take away Silverstone, take away Imola, take away the craziness that we saw at Saudi. And then, of course, you know... I would just rather forget those last five or six laps and the fallout from from Abu Dhabi. You know, I, I really feel that it was, um, yeah, it, it was obviously not the way that we wanted to, you know, the the note that we wanted to end that that that, that season on. But however. No need uh, breaking that down, but, uh, you know, bring it to sort of full circle. I I would love to see the two of them go at it again, but I would also love to see somebody else throw themselves into that mix as well. You know, a Ferrari or a McLaren or maybe one of these other teams that can maybe sort it out and uh, become a, a contender. What do you think, Mark? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 you so it's funny because typically you hand it over to me and you take a breath and you look at your watch as I go on to like a 19 minute soliloquy. But yeah, I don't have a lot more to uh, add on that one. Okay. Well, why why don't we wrap it up uh, there? You know, I, I think that we've uh, kind of gone on for for long I enough. I do. I do oh. have one piece. Oh, you do have one quick. more piece. I promise. Sure. I promise I'll make this quick. So. 99.99999% of our interactions with the F1 community yeah. are unbelievably supportive. Sure. But there is an individual recently that has been hounding and hounding and hounding and blaming us for the fact that Nancy Pelosi got elected. 
I promise you that neither Mark nor I voted for Nancy Pelosi. Neither of us have U.S. passports, and nor do we try to make this show even remotely political. But I thought it was funny because I'm like, do do I send this person like a photograph of my Canadian and British passports? Like, I don't have a U.S. passport, and if I'd wanted to, I couldn't have voted for anyone yeah, in that dude. election. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, that, that, that aside that neither of us are American citizens nor can vote in a, an election in the USA, <laughs> you know, e- even if we did, I wouldn't be divulging my political affiliations uh, on the on the show here, I mean, exactly. Heaven forbid, I show up wearing a Mercedes shirt or a Red Bull hat or a Ferrari something or ever. I, I mean, oh, that, wait that's a some, minute. you know. Uh, I mean, we we've all you know, both of us have do- you know, like donned various bits of uh, team apparel from time to time, and we we got called out for it. We got put on blast, especially when we started uh, live streaming these shows. So. You know, uh, I would I would not go a level further and take it to completely out of the realm of Formula One, especially into the, you know, the hot water of uh, politics and things like that. But, uh, you know, that, that that that's a strange one. That's a strange one. I feel like we do a pretty good job of walking that straight line about ensuring that people that are tuning in for this show, mm-hmm. they're here. They're here for Formula One. They're yeah. here because Formula One represents entertainment and it offers a reprieve and a break from everything else that's going on in the chaotic world. And you know what? Both of us have some deeply held uh, political and social beliefs. And I strongly believe we're both very, very modern and progressive in in most of our views. But Mm -hmm. our, our perspective and our goal isn't to politicize this show because that's not why people are tuning in. And Formula One, for us, like I think it is for so many people listening at home, is an opportunity to escape. It's escapism. It's it's a tool to get away from the hustle and bustle and stresses of modern life. And I think if you feel that we don't do it enough or you feel that we do it too much, that's kind of our position. Yeah, you know, and and occasionally, you know, we get I get emails and you get messages too from from people that say, you know, you're too you know pro Mercedes or you're too pro Red Bull or something, and and that's fair enough. I I can totally agree with that from time to time because both you and I we we sometimes we get caught up in the emotion and sometimes we you know, let our emotions and you know our feelings kind of like uh, take uh, things away and sometimes we do you know maybe take more pro stance for for one driver or team or another. We we try to do our best job, but I have to laugh because uh, years ago, I guess this would have been 2018. I, I think what this is when I was doing the uh, you know the show, uh, either by myself or with Kevin at the time. And I came out at the beginning of the year after Ferrari had a decent 2017, and um, I, I said, you know, this is a year I want to see Ferrari come out strong. I'm throwing uh, you know all my I'm going all in with Sebastian Vettel. I want to see Seb win the championship. I want to see him take it to Lewis. I want to see him take it to Mercedes. And he did a pretty good job up until about halfway, and then you know things started to unravel and then you know he started to do some silly things and get involved in some incidents that uh, that that uh, you know he shouldn't have uh, shouldn't found himself in and at one point i got extremely critical about him and I, I and i even said during my my monologue or my rant at the time that you know if you're a four-time world champion and you do something unbecoming of a four-time world champion on this show you're going to get put on blast i'm going to call you out i love it 
And then, you know, I was going back and then I had a message. Oh, you've got a new review on Apple Podcasts or something like that. And this one guy's like, this guy clearly hates Sebastian Vettel. This is the worst podcast ever. He's totally anti-Ferrari, totally anti-Sebastian uh, Vettel. I'm like, well, obviously this is a guy that just listened to one show because, you know, I've been pumping Seb's tires all season long. <laughs> and I had to laugh about so that because I'm like... You know what? Uh, it, and regardless, if you're a, a one-time world champion or a four or five, seven-time world champion of Lewis Hamilton, you know, if you, you do something unbecoming of somebody with that sort of uh, you know resume, then uh, you're going to be coming in for a little bit of extra criticism. And also on the flip side, sometimes I tend to be a little bit too... Uh, you know, generous with the praise as well sometimes. But, uh, you know, I try to keep it as level as possible. I think you would probably agree with this, but I feel that above all, before we're a Lewis fan, before we're a Max fan, before mm-hmm. we're a Red Bull fan, before we're a Mercedes fan. We're we Nancy fans Pelosi fans. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I was going to say we're for Man, you cut that in perfectly. Yes. We are Formula One fans, and yeah. we just want what's best for the sport. Totally. That yeah. doesn't mean that we can't talk about how passionately we feel about Williams and how much we want to see them recover. It doesn't mean we can't talk about the fact that we love Lewis, but we would love to see a new world champion. It doesn't mean that our opinions can't evolve. And you know, it's funny, last year, you and I were so criticized for the first four months of the season for being Red Bull homers. And then two months later, we were being (laughs) criticized for being Red Bull haters. But you know, our opinions evolve, but above all, we just want what's best for the sport, before a team, before a driver, yeah. we want what's best for the sport. You know, and sometimes that's that's a bit of a trick, right? Because I mean, you nail it when you say that. Uh, at the heart of it, at our core, we're both Formula One fans, and as at as difficult as it is sometimes to to remain neutral, you know, sometimes our own personal loyalties and uh, you know, like our, our own, you know, being a fan, sometimes that that percolates up to the, to the surface because you know. We try to keep it as neutral as possible, you know, to, to varying success or failure, depending on your point of view, <laughs> because we realize that if we, we come out and say, oh, you know what, Max, he nailed it. Yeah, he totally deserved that race in Abu Dhabi. I mean, that's just going to inflame the community, you know, like, uh, and that's going to just spark off, uh, you know, and some people like doing that. Some people like to be the, the, the one person that sets the world on fire, right? So, I mean, we, we try to keep these things uh, in check, uh, but sometimes, you know, like I say, sometimes uh, these uh, these uh, things sort of percolate up to, to, the, to the top and sometimes uh, we get excited about it because sometimes when you get a great race, I mean, it's it's hard not to get, uh, you know, you, you know it's, it's hard not to relive the excitement when you're talking about it, especially when we sit down literally an hour or two after the race is over. And report record the the the, the podcast. Sometimes space is the, the the best thing you can do it. But you know, if you wait a couple of days to kind of sober up and and, and let your emotions settle, everybody's moved on. <laughs> Nobody cares about what happened on Sunday because so we're we're halfway so through the next uh, news cycle. But anyways. It's all good. Anyways, my friend, I, I think we've uh, come come to the end of it. Uh, anything else uh, for this week, or is it uh, time to start uh, packing everything uh, away and turn off start the lights? Turning and- off those lights. As all you right. That's right. Okay. Well, we're going to leave it there. Guys, uh, thank you so very much uh, for downloading, listening to the show. Thank you for all of you that joined in us on uh, YouTube uh, tonight. Joined it? Joined us on YouTube uh, tonight. Anyways, if you want to get in touch, by all means, uh, send us a tweet at ScooteryF1Pod. Send us an email at ScooteryF1Pod at gmail.com. That's a wrap. Enjoy the weekend. Mark and I will be back this time next week. 
That's it. That's a wrap. Take care. Have a good one, everybody. Bye for now.